Hello, I'm Michael Bull, host of the Commercial Real Estate Show. This is a special podcast about commercial lease occupancy costs and CAM expenses. This is not one of our radio shows. This information goes much deeper into lease expenses, negotiation, and accounting than would be suitable for our nationally syndicated radio show. This is fantastic information. If you negotiate leases, if you audit CAM expenses, or you handle leases for your company, this is a goldmine of information for you. Two lease experts join me on stage at the Cobb Galleria in Atlanta at the annual Georgia Society of CPAs conference to share this great information with the attendees. My guests on the panel are John Neville. John is a partner with the law firm AGG, Arnold Golden Gregory, and he works uh, heavily in retail leases. And then Mark Patesh. He is president of KBA Lease Services, and they do underwriting and audits of commercial leases. I'd like to thank both of them for being on the panel. I'd also like to thank the Georgia Society of CPAs for inviting me to arrange the session. And do please thank our sponsors if you enjoy this valuable information. Enjoy. Thank you for being with us. We're going to talk about leases and net leases and uh, uh, gross leases. We're going to talk about expenses and CAM and things that should be in the CAM and shouldn't be in the CAM. And, you know, as a lot of you are uh, dealing with your clients' leases, whether they're landlords or, or maybe uh, tenants more, uh, maybe, uh, more often, uh, there's always discussions about what should be in the, in the lease and what should not be there. Also, people use slang uh, uh, like a triple net or double net, and, and sometimes uh, that might mean different things. So we're going to have several discussions about uh, lease expenses and occupancy costs. If you have a question that you'd like to answer at any time, let's just make this interactive. Go ahead and raise your hand. Let's, let's get your, your question. Also, if you like, you can text me a question uh, that we can uh, use up here. Uh, you can use te my text number, which is 404-668-6502. Does it have to be about um, the topic in particular, or can it be about anything? Yes, please. Don't right. send me a, a funny one like I got from Wayne. Uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't want to start laughing in front of everybody, but that could be a um, game, especially after lunch. Yeah, make Michael laugh. Yeah, that could. <laughs> well, the first thing I think I'd like to to get some comments from you guys on it's uh, first of all, back up. These guys are great experts, as you may have heard in the, in the previous panel. I get to interview a lot of people about commercial real estate, and I'm in commercial real estate for 30 years, uh, and uh, and and it's great to have some real experts and know that you're going to get good information. So the pressure's on, guys. Um, we'll try. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd like to just get a couple definitions and get us started and see where there might be some deviations when a, when a landlord or an investor uh, talks about, a, a let's say, a triple net lease. Uh, give, give us a quick definition of what a triple net lease is supposed to be, John. Triple net, okay, add net compared to a gross, um, which is, I guess, the other type. So a triple net lease is um, a lease where you have a component of base rent. Well, first of all, let me, let me take a step back. How many people in here already know what a triple net lease is by a show of hands? How many people do not, if you're brave enough to raise your hand? Okay. We'll be relatively quick, but also get the information out for those who um, don't know. Um, two general types of way that, that leases can be structured, all right? You can have an all-in lease, which is called a gross lease. And that's where you have a number of $45 a square foot. That's what you're paying. Pretty easy to calculate. Year-to-year -year basis, what you're, going, what, what you're going to be out of pocket. The other side of that is a triple net lease, which is where certain expenses are passed through in addition to your 
base rent. Okay, and your base rent would be the $45 a square foot in the example I just gave. The triple nets, by definition, are three. And typically, it's CAM, taxes, and insurance. Um, I'm a retail lawyer, so you may hear skews from me towards retail. That's all I do. Um, I understand enough about office, but um, you're, you're Mark's really the true office expert over here. So, you know, sometimes they're called operating expenses. And in the office world, probably more often called operating expenses. But you have either operating expenses as a component of a triple net. You have taxes, and you have insurance. And conceptually, the way these triple nets work is that a tenant is going to pay its share of each of those expenses to basically reimburse the landlord and make the landlord whole. The idea being is that the landlord shouldn't be responsible economically for anything, at least if you talk to your landlord. <laughs> but um, on the CAM, which stands for Common Area Maintenance, C-A-M, or operating expenses, again, all sort of the same category, these are costs that are general to operation of the building, or again, in my case, the shopping center. Um, in a retail world, we're talking about parking lot um, cleaning, parking lot um, patching. You know, some landlords would say parking lot repaving. We're talking about landscaping. We're talking about management. We're talking about things that don't apply to any one individual tenant, but apply to everybody. And what the landlord will do is take those expenses and divide them up on using square footage amongst the tenants, and the tenants will pay their share each year. Same thing with taxes. Generally applies to real estate taxes, which is another component. Could also apply to special assessments, um, general assessments, other things in lieu of taxes. All sort of lumped together in these leases as taxes. So component one are operating cost and CAM. Component two is taxes. Component three would be landlord's insurance. And again, that's the cost of landlord maintaining insurance, its insurance. We're not talking about tenant insurance here, um, which a tenant is going to be required to maintain in every lease. And so what will happen is the landlord is going to estimate each of those three expenses for their entire project um, at the beginning of a year. And they're going to give estimates to their tenants and tell the tenants, you have to pay you know, on a monthly basis, X a square foot, to, to make me whole for your share of CAM, for your share of taxes, and your share of insurance. You go through the year. Typically, at the end of the year, the landlord is going to do a true up. And if there's money owed because the actual expenses were greater, then the tenant's going to get a bill. And if there's money that's not owed, um, the landlord will keep it, <laughs> unless the lease is properly negotiated to have it credited or refunded to the tenant. And that's where, as lawyers, we come in as we try and negotiate these things in, into landlord leases. But um, again, conceptually, a triple net lease is where the landlord is passing through its additional expenses on a pro rata basis in addition to that base rent. Did that answer your question? Yes. And if let's say that we're, our client is buying a, a single tenant net lease property and it's defined as a, a triple net uh, investment property. So the owner, the investor, is not supposed to have any, in their mind, have any operational cost or other costs. When can it uh, not be really true triple net? Mark? Well, uh, what happens is, is um, landlords will often try to the, 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 the division in expenses, uh, what we were just talking about, the division in expenses tends to be one side is ownership expenses, the other side are tenant opera are operational expenses for a property. The way leases should be structured is the, the ownership expenses belong to the landlord. They belong to the owner, to the investor. The question is, and, and obviously the other ones belong to the tenant, and somehow, depending upon how the lease is structured, in one way or another, the tenant is paying for the operational cost of that property. The division is, 
is when when things go over to the to the ownership side. So you can have an item that's a capital expenditure, where the reason that a tenant doesn't want to pay for a capital expenditure is it's essentially an investment in the property. This is an ownership type item. An ownership type item, as an ownership type item, it should be on the ownership side. Tenants object to capital expenditures because that's their nature. And so, and, and there's tons of arguments and tons of negotiations. And if you get, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I was gonna say, if you get 20 accountants in a room, you get 20 definitions of capital, okay? Uh, but, but it's true because, because there, are a lot of different, there are a lot of different standards that can apply. And in this context, the standard that most people are used to might not be the appropriate one. So. And, and, and I would say, Michael, that, that and I'll put on my landlord hat here just because I know that you do, but we both do tenant work. My practice is about 50-50. So I'll take the 50% landlord for the next few yeah, minutes here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm a landlord though, you know, the, the objective really is it's supposed to be a triple net deal. It's supposed to be, you know, my costs are supposed to be passed through. And the fact of the matter is, is that we can amortize certain expenses over their useful life to make sure that our tenants aren't paying for things that are um, going to last longer than my tenant. But at the end of the day, you know, if, if we're all agreeing, for instance, that it's appropriate to have tenants pay for the cost of a new a parking lot patching in a shopping center, because we don't want holes in our shopping centers, then why wouldn't it also be appropriate if it saves money or if it just makes more practical sense, if it looks better, to go ahead and, 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 and repave that parking lot and pass through those costs of repaving to the tenants. They're getting a better deal, a better looking center, and then we'll amortize it so okay. when they're gone, they don't have to pay for it. All right, so, so this is fun. There's your bait. This I, is I, fun. I, I, you, baited, you baited me. Okay. Great. Okay, so here's the question. If you lease a property for, if you, you lease a property for 99 years, and effectively in a 99-year period, everything in the property is going to need to be replaced. Everything. And what you're paying rent for is for the use and using up of that asset. That's what you're paying, that's what your rent is. I'm getting 10 years of a, let's assume that the property has a finite life of 100 years. I'm using one-tenth of that asset up. And my rent is going to pay, to pay for the use of that asset. Okay? Now with the lease accounting changes and, 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 and all of that, it's going to become more obvious. But that's essentially what's going on. If that's the case, and I'm paying for the roof in my rent, and I'm paying for the parking lot, and I'm paying for the walls, and I'm paying for the systems, and I'm paying for everything, I don't need to pay again as these things wear out and need to be replaced. I'm already paying for them. But you agree if there's a hole in the parking lot, We'll pave that, and we'll patch that hole, and we'll pass through that patch. So the question, the question is a matter of degree, and this is the question of whether gap applies or whether anything else applies. You know, theoretically, and, and I'm going to ask all of you, and I'll ask you guys, you know, theoretically, if something adds value, my, my understanding of capital is it adds value or extends the life of the asset beyond the current accounting period, okay? Now, forget materiality. With that definition, the replacement of a light switch is capital. Now, nobody cares, but the nature of the item is still capital, okay? So now it's a question of what is the threshold, where is the line between things that tenants will accept and will readily pay for and, where is the, and, be, and, and the ones that they won't pay for? Because theoretically, if you change, there's a light switch, I'm already paying my rent, I'm already paying in 10 years, I'm paying one-tenth of the cost of the original light switch that was put in there. It's ridiculous. It's a light switch. Nobody cares. We understand that. But the nature of the item doesn't change with its value. The nature of the item is the nature of the item. And so now you deal with issues of, 
Is it material? And materiality is a question, you know, materiality comes around from, from financial statements as to whether the reader of the, the user of the financial statement would deem it material to their investment decision. Well, that's not the same context here. You know, what's materiality? If I have to pay for it, it's material. You know, it's different from looking at a statement. So you have all kinds of standards issues here. Uh, but, the, but, but when I look at capital, I try to look at it from a purist position. Something that's capital is capital in its nature. And then we go into the issue of what do we pay for? I, um, I, I, Michael, we're happy to go down this path <laughs> just to make sure we've answered your question that's fully. Right. Um, you know, the, I, the most common way in these standalone triple nets that I see the, the cost um, sort of get askew is that even on um, like a standalone Walgreens, we'll say, a lot of times um, they'll negotiate that the landlord is responsible for roof replacement or landlord is responsible for um, parking lot repairs or you know, something of the sort as structural matters to the building. And so it'll be advertised as a triple net building, but yet if you read page 12, line six of, of this 30 page lease, you'll see there actually are expenses that the, the owner is responsible for. And that, that can be misleading if you don't have you know, either a, a accountant or an attorney or somebody you know, help the client looking at this. You know, they'll see that the brokers advertised it as triple net and, and the broker will advertise it as triple net and, and nobody will know any different until that expense comes up. That's right. Yeah, and the other thing with triple net too is it may be triple net in the definition of, of taxes, insurance, and, and CAM that the tenant's paying but there may be a uh, shared drainage area, say, for the shopping center and out parcel, where there could be some possibly significant costs coming up. So I think if you've got a client uh, buying a single tenant triple net lease property, you want to kind of look into those things and see if there's going to be any more, you know, insurance, if it's not a bond lease, or if there's some shared maintenance that you're going to have to cover, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about. Um, you, you went down the path, and I think we should go there now to give some great takeaways. And so I think one of the questions that, that tenants have and our clients have all the time is, what, what should be included in CAM or not? Now, you know, we know there's always CAM in retail leases, but we're starting to see it more and more in office leases as well. And it's certainly involved in, uh, in, in single tenant where you're just paying all the expenses, but on a multi-tenant industrial and, and more so an office, like in most all of our medical office buildings that we're selling the institutional quality, uh, there's CAM there. So they're passing through almost 9 to $10 worth of CAM. So let's talk about what might be typically included in CAM and what might be excluded. Let, let me start with a cynical but, but honest answer. What, what's included in CAM is whatever the landlord chooses to include in CAM. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, and you know, I had this discussion with a developer client of mine on Monday. You know, is a shopping center, 40 leases are in the shopping center. Um, tenant comes back and, and does otherwise a pretty fair markup of our form lease. But they've chopped up the whole CAM expense section where they've deleted a lot of the things that wanted to be passed through. They've added a page and a half of exclusions to this lease form. And we're looking at it, and my client gets on the phone, and he's got his form out in front of him, and he's ready to go line by line. So let's look at these things and see what we can do and see what we can't do. And I pause, and I'm like, shouldn't we get your property manager on the phone? Well, but why? Well, because the reason is the real world, the way it works, is that the landlord is going to maintain its books and records for operating a shopping center like it's going to do. If there are certain expenses that are not in the form to begin with, for instance, let's say that you know, Mark and I are, are co-owners, and just as benevolent owners, we decide that we're not going to pass through roof replacement costs. 
if that's a, if that's in our form, okay, that that probably will not be passed through by the property manager. But my point would be, if you take a step back and think of a hundred thousand square foot shopping center, and you have some twenty five hundred square foot tenant who's got great representation, Mark, one of his colleagues, somebody he refers, and they go through and they negotiate the CAM provisions completely differently. The real world is that when they're calculating CAM for that center, that twenty five hundred square foot lease isn't probably going to be pulled out of the door. The landlord's going to manage it the way they do. Now, if you have a good property manager, then the landlord's going to come back and talk with that property manager and have a list of what's in and what's out, and they'll give a good reconciliation at the end of the year. But most of the time, it's just sent out, which is where you come in, and it's left up to the tenants to figure out whether the right charges were passed through or not. So, you know, what's included to me, Michael, to answer your question in CAM is really what's in the landlord's base lease form. And if you're negotiating something out of the landlord's base lease form, then we got to talk about protections for that tenant to make sure that it's getting the benefit of the bargain that it negotiates. Right. And that may take you on to a different step. So we'll, we'll stop there. But um, I'm a big believer that if you represent a developer, you need to work with them as accountants, as attorneys, as brokers to make sure that their lease form actually includes what they intend to pass through. Right. And, and if it turns out that, that because the way a particular landlord operates that certain expenditures are going to get passed through, then you change your deal. Change your deal. I mean, if you know that this, you know, what you're saying, John, is absolutely true. I mean, and it's not the 2,500 square foot tenant. It's every tenant. Most landlords have, you know, 20, 30, can be more, can be a few less tenants in a building. And they have multiple properties. They do not have the wherewithal, they do not have the time, and certainly they don't have the interest, but I'm, not, I'm gonna take that out of the equation. They don't have the time and they don't have the wherewithal to sit and read every lease in every building and tailor every CAM or operating expense bill to that individual tenant. And they will freely admit that, that they just don't, they don't have the resources for it. And I think that's where the opportunity is for, for us and, and, and you guys is that you know, look at those situations and read the leases and look at what should be included in CAM and what should not and if there's any limits in those expenses. And one, let, let's talk about the ways that, that some of these tenants have uh, some controls on those expenses and, and talk about the various ways. So one of the ways is to just control the overall increase of, of all the CAM expenses to a, to a percentage each year, right? It is, and, and you know, it's it, it, cam caps are what we refer to them in the, in the retail business, and it is exactly that. It's a cap on annual increases. Now, it's important to know for all of us if we're trying to help our clients, there are two types of cam caps. There's a cumulative cam cap. There's a non-cumulative cam cap. Right. Two very different things. Best example is this. Let's say that cam is a dollar a square foot year one. Okay, year two, uh, let's say year one, landlord has 92 cents. Was the actual expense were the actual expenses we have a five percent non-cumulative cap okay in year two then if 92 cents was where it actually was in year one then landlord can go up five cents or five percent off that 92 cents okay let's say landlord doesn't let's say landlord stays at 92 cents in year three landlord can go up five percent on 92 cents because it's non-cumulative you look at the immediate past year um, cumulative cap, on the other hand, same example, year one's 92, year two, landlord can go up to 105. Because just because they didn't use their full 5% or didn't have the full dollar in year one doesn't matter. Year two, they can go up 110, I guess, 5% over 105. 
So it, the question is versus cumulative versus non-cumulative. It, non-cumulative is a lose it, a use it or lose it proposition. You either use your full amount or you don't, and it's 5%. Cumulative gives landlords a little bit more protection because cumulative allows, even if you have a, a cheap year for CAM in one year, you still have the benefit of, of using your 5% you've built in every single year. Huge difference in negotiating CAM caps. Do you find that sometimes leases are not very clear on that? You know, not, I mean, this is, this is going to sound self-serving. Not that we draft. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, but you're, Mark, you're reviewing more leases that were done years ago. Right? Yeah, we see, we see tons of problems in, in, because the, there's actually a third component. So, so what you just said is right. And then if you think about the 92 cents, is it 5% on 92? Okay. So is it 5% on 92 or 5% on the dollar? Right. And so, and then the next year, so a cap can go, you know, the, the number we're talking about is a cap. It really depends on the intent with, with, the, with the landlord. The landlord might say, look, I need protection of at least 5% a year. And so that means in three years, it can go up 15%. So if it go, only goes up 2% one year and the next year it goes up 8%, that could be allowable. Under accumulative. Under accumulative. Yeah. So, so we see tons of problems, tons of confusion. There's actually an article I, I, we wrote about this. If anyone's interested, you could email me and I'll get it to you. But there, 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 are, there are probably four or five different variations on these things. And the, the big problem is nobody understands them, okay? <laughs> and so, and it's funny, John, and, you know, I've been there and you've been there and, and you've been there too. You know, you sit in a room and you negotiate a lease and you argue and you say, oh yeah, I'll pay for that if A and B happens, and then you do a carve out. But if C happens, I only pay half. And if A, B, and C happens, I only pay half. But if D happens, I'll, I'll kick that item back in. But then if E happens, something else happens. And what does and the so, landlord do with that? Absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah, and that, <laughs> I, I, got in, I got into this business of doing audits of leases after negotiating a lease with a landlord. And it, you know, late at night, we we're arguing over who pays what. And the landlord turned to me and said, Mark, he said, yeah, you're a nice, bright, young lawyer, and you're doing a great job for your client, but I've got to tell you, no one's going to ever look at the lease again. It's going to go in a drawer. And, you know, and, and, and the reality is that, that we all get off on this intellectual exercise of negotiating, and, and I got you on this, and you got me on that, and we go back and forth, and you get this clause shaped just right, you know, it has just the right shape, you know, we'll pay for certain things under the right circumstances and we won't pay for certain things under those circumstances. And it's, it's beautiful. You could, you could frame it on your wall. It goes in a drawer. It goes in a drawer and then nobody looks at it. And then, so, so we developed a business around that and then we developed a software application to manage that process. But, but, and even, and so this was like, this is 1985, it's almost 30 years ago, and the problem still persists because the reality is that everyone's got more important things to do than look at this stuff. They just don't look. And tenants really want to control their occupancy costs, right? That's why oh, these, sure, yeah. these caps are there. Yeah. Your, your, your clients that are tenants want to know, what am I budgeting next year and the year after the year after? So they're, wanna, they're always going to try, when we're working as a tenant rep for, for a tenant, they always want to try to control those expenses and sometimes we can get a cap on what the landlord may call controllable expenses but won't give us a cap as a tenant on uncontrollable expenses tell us what might be considered controllable and uncontrollable my, my favorite definition of controllable and I, I will admit it is in at least one lease form that i use for a current client which is controllable expenses mean all cam expenses except 
And these first Every, ones I think are going to be easy. Everyone. <laughs> snow, snow and ice removal, which, you know, we have a lot of that here in Georgia. Maybe last year we did. Um, snow ice removal, utilities, security cost, taxes, and insurance. All standard. You're not going to get much pushback on most of those. We then have cost of governmental compliance. So if the government mandates something, that's not a controllable expense. And then anything else which landlord deems non-controllable. Right. <laughs> I get it 75% of the time in that lease form. For you. you know, and, and it's because, you know, it's the nature of the center coupled with a good brokerage representation on the landlord side to actually have that definition posted in the letter of intent. But um, if I'm a tenant, I mean, go ahead, eat, eat me up. Tell you, that, no, it's, that, that, that's, a useless, that's a useless definition. No, it's a useless definition. Yeah. You know, and, and, and controllable and non-controllable really, um, I mean, let, you know, it's funny, we're talking about retail and there's another structure that's at play here, which is the gross lease, okay? So the gross lease, yeah, we, talked, we opened up the conversation about gross versus net. So here's the thing, office leases in most parts of the country tend to be what they call modified gross leases. So a gross lease is $45 all in, all the expenses are covered. A landlord will freely sign a lease like that for a year. <laughs> Maybe they'll go two, but they know that as soon as the length of the lease starts to go longer, they're at risk because they don't know what the ta what's going to happen with taxes. They don't, you know, it's, it's scary. So you sign a five or a 10 year lease, you need some protection and you could go instead of 45, you can make it 50 and it's a flat 50 for 10 years, but even that's scary. There was a, a, a big building in New York, uh, a 1933 Broadway. Um, 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 it's a Paramount building now. It was, it was occupied in the 70s by Sears. And Sears had a deal that was just like that. It was a structured lease. It had no pass-throughs or anything. It was just a straight amount of money. And if, you, if anyone knows this, in the 70s, inflation was like 20%. It's crazy numbers. And the building expenses went through the roof, and the landlord lost the building because they couldn't cover the expenses with the rent. Sears had almost all of the building. And it happens a lot. So you build a mechanism in a, in a gross lease, in an office lease, that says, I'll pay you, tenant will pay landlord, if costs go up, we'll pay you and keep your whole, we'll pay the spread. And the spread we're talking about, so you have these controllable and non-controllable issues. In an office lease, you don't really have that issue as much because every, you're only paying the incremental change. Um, so, so you're talking about an expense stop? Explain expense stop. All right, so, so I just described a transaction where, so you move into the building in 2014 and you say, landlord, I'm taking a 10-year lease, it goes to 2024. I will pay you if the costs go up, right? I'll pay you my share. If I have half the building, I'll pay half. If I have the whole building, I'll pay whole. If I have 10%, I'll pay 10%. I will pay you my share of the increases in costs. What does that mean? That means we're gonna to have to look at a starting point, which is typically called a base year of 2014. It's this year, the landlord knows the expenses for this year. He knows it's gonna cost him $15 a foot, whatever the numbers are. And so he could factor in and do his performers and everybody's happy and everybody's safe. And then you look at 2014, you look at it in 2015, and you look at 2014 and say, ah, oh, things went up, went up by 50 cents a foot, send the tenant a bill for 50 cents a foot. You look at the second year, they went up by another 50 cents a foot, you send the tenant a bill for a dollar, and then just keep going. An expense stop, so, so the, the, the thing with a base year lease is even though the landlord knows what the 2014 expenses are right now, we're, we're at the end of June, most landlords doing a deal now pretty much know 
what the expenses are going to be for 2014. But there could be a change in the world, you know? I mean, you had in 9-11, in, in, in the world changed. Things can happen. You can have a crazy snow year, right? December of this year. So landlords know that, that in, in, in Georgia, it, it rarely snows. We, we don't have to factor much into that. We'll take our chance. The landlord is taking a chance when it accepts 2014 as a base year. If, if it snows like crazy in November and December and the expenses go through the roof in November and December, then next year when the landlord measures expenses against 2014, he's got a very high bar to reach before he could start charging the tenant anything. An expense stop is a lease where the landlord and tenant agree and negotiate a number. And they say, it's gonna be 15 bucks. Anything over 15 bucks, will pay the difference. The tenant. The tenant will pay the, the difference. So you, you, don't, you don't leave it to chance as to what the expenses might come in at. You lock it down. Landlords like that, tenants don't, because tenants are not in control of their buildings. And we have seen cases where landlords will manipulate the expenditures in a given year. In a large building where you have large expenditures, landlords might, might hold all the expenditures off, make sure they don't appear in the base year, so that they hit the next year and you keep the base low. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more lease accounting and expense information for you in 30 seconds. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by RealCrowd, crowdfunding for institutional quality real estate. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. Florida International University. Earn your commercial real estate master's degree in as little as 10 months. Visit FIUonline.com. And Bull Realty Commercial Brokers, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. And France Media Publications and Conferences. For exposure to the world of commercial real estate, visit francemediainc.com. Welcome back to the Lease Occupancy Cost and CAM session from the Georgia Society of CPAs, brought to you by the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. My guests on the panel are John Neville, an attorney with Arnold Golden Gregory, and Mark Patesh with KBA Lease Services. Enjoy. What are some examples of expenses that our clients, if we're reviewing their lease and their lease expenses, that they might, a landlord might try to pass through that we may be able to push back on. Well, let's give a real example. You and I talked mm -hmm. about this on the phone a little bit yesterday. Not to bore with war stories, but this was relevant to what we're talking about. Um, I have a, a retail lease in a shopping center that um, was negotiated with nothing short of a crazy landlord. And it, it was a, a small mom and pop owner in South Florida. Um, the lady had an attorney and, and consistently just disregarded her attorney and, and thought that she was bigger, better, and brighter than, than, than he was. And so the attorney would do a redraft and exchange it with us, and then this landlord would come back in and insert her own language. Well, in CAM, the deal in the negotiated deal sheet was that management fees would be capped at 15% of CAM. So in other words, the management fee that was going to be charged by whoever was managing that property was going to be a maximum of 15% of all other CAM charges. And, I mean, we can talk about it, but standard is somewhere between 10 and 15% of CAM or 4 to 6% of overall rents, you know, in the shopping center is typically how you would put a number on a management fee. But this was 15%. P 
shopping center gets sold to a really sophisticated owner who I have a lot of respect for. Sophisticated owner gets that lease, sends out a 2013 reconciliation, and the management fee is just through the roof. It's way beyond 15% of all the other CAM costs. We look at it. The attorney I know well, we've negotiated a lot of deals before. She's in-house. And I get her on the phone and ask, ask her to explain to me how, how we got here. And she points out the fact that in this, this lady, the landlord, when she was negotiating this lease, had gone back in and added language that said that not only that there was a 15% management fee, but it also said that the landlord could pass through the cost of its personnel. Yep. Um, and it said it could pass through wages and salaries and benefits and everything else of, of personnel. And then it says down below, after these list of inclusions, notwithstanding the foregoing, landlord's cumulative you know, administrative and management fee shall be 15% of camp go back and look at that and so landlord of course takes a position that there's a 15 percent surcharge effectively for management and they can pass through the salary of this person who's on site who's managing the property we take the position as the tenant in this case that no you know that's a manager and the manager's capped at 15 percent because you know now the lawyer's coming out it says notwithstanding and that should take precedence point being is that management fees can be negotiated Okay, and management fees, in my experience, and I'm real curious to see what you think, but in the retail world, management fees make up a huge component yep. of what landlords try and pass through to their tenants. And the only word of caution is, is whether you have a crazy landlord trying to negotiate it to make provisions inconsistent, or whether you have a um, you know, crazy attorney trying to interpret it to, to, to make a lot of money for one side or the other. The fact of the matter is, is that if you negotiate caps on management fees, just make sure it's painfully clear that that is the only management fee because otherwise you will have thought you negotiated this this right and you may or may not have it there's a um, a lot of fuzzy uh, a lot of fuzzy line there are a lot of fuzzy lines between management costs administrative costs property management costs and we see this all the time and and it is a very very frequent argument common argument where where a landlord will say the management fee is just that. It's a fee. It's a fee for managing, and it's in addition to whatever costs are incurred at the property. And you have to be very careful as, a, as, as an attorney in negotiating leases to make sure that that overlap doesn't exist. The, the idea, go back to what we started with in the beginning. The tenant agrees to pay for the operational costs of operating the property not the ownership costs, okay? So when it comes to personnel, the question is, who is the, you know, who, is, who are the ownership people? Now, certainly somebody sitting in the investor's office doing the tax returns is not an operational person for that tenant. Is somebody that is securing the vendors to clean the parking lot and to provide security, is that person? That person is, is really an operational person to a certain extent, and to a certain extent, some of their salary may be appropriate. But all of this is supposed to be a zero-sum game. You're not supposed to make a fee unless it's negotiated by a landlord, and many landlords will try to do this. There is not supposed to be a fee on top of the cost of providing the service. And many leases and many attorneys miss that point and allow a management fee in addition to all of the costs of managing. 
It's but notwithstanding is a great word. That's a great and, word. And, and, I, and I, I won the argument, thankfully. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, management fees are heavily negotiated, Michael. To answer your question, other things, you know, capital expenses, which we've already talked about at some length, and we can, you know, defining them is a whole separate story. Yep. But you typically, a tenant can negotiate out capital expenses. Um, you know, tenants typically can negotiate, again, anybody who's not on site, like you were going to the point about the, the tax return person sitting in the corporate office. Right. Um, you know, other common exclusions can be everything from political contributions of landlords. Certainly the cost of landlords' mortgage shouldn't be passed through. You know, cost of landlords trying to lease space within their building or premises. You know, those leasing and brokerage costs generally should not be passed through. Um, there's a list of about 25 to 30 things that are typically excluded in a retail deal that I'd be happy to provide, and I'm sure our list would be yep. pretty, pretty similar. It just goes back to the question of, great, you've negotiated this. How's it going to be implemented? What so that's about, the word of caution. What about the CAM and operating cost on uh, vacant space? The question came uh, from uh, Wayne in the crowd here through uh, text wow. on the dark space. The so, technology works. Yes, technology works. If I'm the landlord, you know, I'll, I'll agree to say no more than 20%. So I won't make the, tenant, the existing tenant subsidize more than 20%. But at the end of the day, you know, that, that's a, there are some costs that are fixed, whether it's full or, or not full. You know, and um, you know, frankly, the tenants who are there want landlords providing their services. So you know, the, the, the fact that some space is empty might it mean that the tenants have to pay a slightly greater amount because not everything is leased? It might. But at the end of the day, do the tenants who are in the shopping center want their services? They do. There's your there's your So, date. so uh, <laughs> how many people in the audience have heard of the term gross up? for when it comes to real estate leases. Okay, so very good. So here's the deal. Um, you know, the best lease, I, I, I only saw this once, the best lease that, that exp expressed the intent that I think is behind this whole concept said, I saw one day, said, tenant will pay 100% of the costs attributable to its space. Okay, think about it. It's a little bit different structure. The way most leases are structured, is you take, you take the expenses, you aggregate them, and then you charge people based upon their share. But the, the most accurate description is that you, was, you are supposed to pay as a tenant, like I said in the very beginning, all of the cost of operating your space. What does that mean? So, so if, um, if you have, um, I'm trying to think about in, in a retail context where this would be. In an office context, it's very, very common. Let's say in an office building that's structured like a net lease, an office building, uh, you're supposed to pay your share of cleaning. And you have half the building, and the other half of the building is vacant. Nobody's cleaning the other half of the building. Is it fair, if you're getting charged 50% of the cost, is it fair to, charge 50, to pay 50% of the cost of only half the building? That's not right. You should be paying 50% of, you should be paying 100% of the cleaning attributable to your space. How do you get there? Most leases have this roundabout structure where you take the overall expenses for the building. So let's assume that only half the building is being cleaned and the other half of the building is not being cleaned. If the structure is that I'm gonna pay 50% of the cost, then I've gotta take the cost and adjust them so that when you apply 50% to it, I end up with 100% of my cost. So grossing up takes the expense of whatever it is and adjusts it in an appropriate way, and that's um, it's a very loaded term, in an appropriate way to get it so that when you charge your 50% against it, you end up with the costs that are properly attributable to your space. Not attributable to your space 
individually, but generally, if you have half the building, you should pay half of the expense of a normal expense. So a gross-up is a normalizing operation. It's way off the grid when it comes to normal accounting treatment, right? It's, it's not an accounting function. It's a real estate function. It's you're taking an expense and you're adjusting it to what it would look like if the building were fully operational at full cost, and there are a ton of issues, not only occupancy related for this, but you want to get the cost up to normal, whatever normal is, so that when you apply your 50%, you end up with the right amount of money. It's like a two-step process. And that's, so, so I, I, and, and as John is saying, there are certain things that don't get adjusted. You know, there, uh, real estate taxes, unless the, the landlord has appealed the taxes because the building is partially vacant, if the taxes are still at full level for fully occupied property, you don't make an adjustment to taxes even though the building is half empty because it's already at a full level. There are a lot of very soft adjustments that have to be made. A lot of our time is spent challenging those adjustments, making sure they're correct, making sure they're fair and reasonable. Paying an expenditure that if the, bill, if the, if the shopping center is half empty or 20% empty, I don't want to pay for things that don't, aren't not attributable to me. But the question would be, let's say, for instance, we use a cheap expense, but just one that comes to mind, like satellite TV service. Let's say that DirecTV is going to charge $1,000 a month to the building or the shopping center, right. um, no matter whether it's full or not full. You know, we could be at full occupancy, we could have two people that, that, that want it. Um, if I'm a landlord, I'm at the position that if I've got two tenants that are in there and I've got even 50% of my building is empty, that cost of the direct TV service is gonna be split between the two tenants that are there. Right. Um, so a, a tenant may take the position that, well, if the building were full, it'd still be $1,000. And my pro rata share of the building is 10%, so I'm only gonna pay $100. I'm not paying $500 because it's your fault, landlord, that you've not leased up your building. That's right. Which is right? I don't know. I don't know what the, what, what the rule of thumb is. I don't know what the, what, the, what the ground rule should be. To me, if I'm a tenant in that circumstance, it's not my responsibility to make sure that I don't have control over I don't have control over how many tenants are in a shopping center. I'm, I have, if it's a fixed expenditure, now, now if it's a fixed expenditure, I should still pay my 10% if I have 10% of the shopping center. It's not my responsibility. I have no control over the other 90%. Now, there are leases, and especially in retail you see this, where the calculation is a little different, where it's where so, so the 10% is, the, is, is, you come up with the 10% how? It's our share, right, our, our footage divided by the footage, the leasable area of a shopping center. Well, and, and, and certain landlords will take the position, like you're saying, John, where it's not, the denominator is not the total area of the shopping center, the denominator is the area that's leased and occupied. Well, what does that mean? So if I have 10,000 feet, in a 100,000-foot shopping center, and the denominator is the area least and occupied, and I'm the only one, guess what? I'm paying 100% of the expenditure. You're paying $1,000 direct TV And that's the argument. And the argument is, and it's a fundamental argument that happens, especially in retail leases. Office leases, you don't see it too much. It's a fundamental argument over who has responsibility for those items. And you're used to $1,000, but it could be a big number. Sure. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, I, mean, ta I mean, taxes is the yeah. best example. Taxes yeah. could be $100,000, and you're, you're the only you know, tenant standing, 25% in the building, and you could get hit. The difference between the words leased versus leasable That's right. could mean the difference between you paying 25% of that huge number or 100% of that huge number. So the most interesting thing about this 
is, you know, like I love listening to John because I've got to tell you, in my career, I've probably only come across about four or five attorneys that get it. No, seriously, I'm not, I just met him, okay? I just met him. But most people that negotiate leases have no clue as to the financial consequences of these clauses. And you sit across a negotiating table and you horse trade. All right, I'll pay for this if you pay for that. And they don't realize, some, many, many, many attorneys, landlord's attorneys realize it, because that's their business. Tenant's attorneys don't realize it. And they don't realize, ah, I got that point. You know, meanwhile, in reality, that's worth $7,000 that they got. And they gave up something worth $300,000 in return. Okay? And the landlord's laughing all the way to the bank because the landlord, that's their business. And the key is getting people that understand the financial consequences of all these clauses. So it's, it's reassuring. And I, and I think it's legal malpractice, frankly. If, if, if we have a client that comes to us that, um, you know, the, the difference between leased versus leasable is so big that if that's not caught and discussed with your client, right. I mean, that is such a huge difference. That, that, you know, I, I think it is a malpractice claim if it's not pointed out. If the, if the deal was supposed to be leasable and it, was le it says leased in your actual execution document. And that's not something our clients are going to pick up on. They're just not well, trained to look for it. And I, I think it's important that I think everyone knows this in the room and in the audience that, you know, that the, the counsel, the, the, the broker, the, and everyone, the, the attorney involved is a specialist in what they do. So, you know, they're more apt to not make those mistakes. One of the mistakes we see sometimes with tenants is, They'll use an attorney that, that they know and like that's not a real estate attorney or not a retail real estate attorney. And it'd be best if, if it's a retail property that it's a retail lease, a, a retail attorney that deals with it every day. Uh, another thing that's coming up a lot for tenants in these situations are the investment market uh, is getting pretty hot. And so the cap rates are being compressed. The investors that are buying these properties are looking for ways to improve their NOI. So there's no, there's no precedent set, right, on, on, on these pass-throughs. In other words, you may have a tenant that, that's, that a landlord, for instance, that's not passing through some expenses that they're able to. And what the investors are doing is they're looking at those leases and they're saying, what can we pass through to, to increase our NOI on this building to these tenants? And uh, like happened, I guess, to your client, all of a sudden they're not getting a bill, and then a new owner comes in and says, all right, no, you're going to have to pay all these expenses, right? And, they're gonna, and, they could, and it could climb quickly. So that's something to watch out for. What else might we find in our clients' leases if we're auditing, auditing their CAM and their operating expenses on their lease? What else might you, we typically look for where a landlord may be accidentally overcharging them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's... I wish I knew 10 years ago what I know now, and, and I wish I knew 10 years before that what I knew then. It, it, this stuff is always changing. Uh, big area is, uh, is allocations and mixed-use properties. All right? So you will see a, a property that has uh, a retail component, an office component, uh, maybe an entertainment component, and, and you have different expenditures that are attributable to different parts of that, that parcel. Uh, so you have to be careful as a tenant, you want, you want to make, sh again, back to, back to that, that ideal lease that I talked about, you want to pay 100% of the stuff attributable to you. Um, in, in New York and in most urban areas, you'll see office buildings with retail on the ground floor. A retail tenant will say, I don't want to pay for elevators. My people never use the elevators, okay? They walk in off the street. And I don't want to pay for, and I don't want to pay for cleaning. We do our own cleaning, and so you have 
all of these things have to be parsed and have to be uh, have to be understood and charged appropriately. And again, it takes a lot of doing. And sophisticated, multi-use, multi-tenant, and 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 uh, 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 um, uh, larger property owners, they have the capacity. They know how to do this. And generally we find that they make an attempt to do that, at least in the pooling area. They'll create an expense pool for retail. They'll create an expense pool for the office. They'll have a common pool of expenses that apply to both, and they have to do the allocations. But these are things that we, that we look at all the time, and it takes a lot of effort. I mean, you have to, you have to really dig in and see what the things are for. Um, uh, uh, beyond the capital, you know what it is? I, you know, I, I'd like to give you a, an itemized list of expenditures, but th the truth is that the way leases get negotiated, you know, you come in with, with, with if, if you're representing a landlord, you'll have your standard lease, the tenant will come back with their standard list of objections, and you go through this process of, 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 of negotiating down to what it is. The biggest problem that we see is that, the, the, is that people aren't reading the words carefully and all of the inclusions and the exclusions and the treatments and the formulas are all in there. But they're not drafted well, they're not clear, they conflict with each other. And if you start really reading them carefully, you, you realize that, you know what, this is off track. And the biggest thing that we find, and, and, you know, if, if I were to give it a macro view, is that deals go off track a lot. You know, the, 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 what's in the minds of the negotiators when they're doing the deal and the business, the business handshake that took place that put that deal together gets distorted. And it gets distorted through the language and it gets distorted through the operations. And all of a sudden you thought your proformers had you projected to go to a certain level. And even the landlord's proformers project the income to be at a certain level and you're off track. And what we try to do is we try to identify where it's off track and go back and you look at the lease and say, wait a minute, this is not what we meant. It might be what it says, it's not what we meant. We need to fix, sometimes we have to fix the lease itself. Because the lease, even though everyone knew what it meant when they signed it, they don't, it doesn't make any sense anymore. That could be inconsistent. I think going to your calls full point for a minute, um, whether it's mixed use or whether it's in a true retail deal, there typically is a separate cost pool for restaurants as well, and that should be flagged just as you're understanding the concept of cost pools because there are, there are expenses that are unique to restaurants yep. that aren't used, for instance, by an Ann Taylor store. You know, trash is an obvious one. You know, restaurants are going to produce a lot more trash than, than, than an Ann Taylor store. Um, utility fees, you certain utilities are uh, going to be used a lot more by restaurants than, than certain other retailers. So just know amongst those cost pools that there are several things that may be allocated just to restaurant users. Obviously, if you're a restaurant, you know, which, which when I got my tenant hat on, I'm doing a lot of, you know, the arguments look, you know, whether you're a mixed-use building or whether you're a strip center out here on Cobb Parkway, landlords want restaurants. Why? Because restaurants draw people. Restaurants keep people in the building, the office building, for lunch. Restaurants draw people to the shopping center, and hopefully when they're done eating a burrito, they go next door to Ann Taylor. But at the end of the day, if, if the people in the shopping center want a restaurant present, then the people in the shopping center need to be willing to pay for a restaurant. If that means their trash bill is a little bit higher, would they rather have a higher trash bill and have a restaurant, or would they rather have no restaurant? And when you phrase a question that way, most tenants come around that aren't restaurants to see the fact that, that – you know, within reason, at least, they should be paying for part of the cost of that restaurant. Well, being there. describe how, how anchors work in a, in a mall. Same way. Exactly. I mean, right. anchors, anchors get a sweetheart deal that you can't believe. The anchors get these tremendous deals because anchors are the magnets. 
And the way most shopping large malls work is that the, the anchor stores pay whatever sweetheart deal they get and whatever is left over of the actual cost of operating the shopping center or the mall get divided up among the inline stores. And it's not fair, it's but it is fair. Yeah. You know, it's not fair. I mean, so, so the question is, where are you coming from? Are you coming from an issue of, of like I said, the ideal lease is I pay, I pay for what it costs to run my store? Or do you cross over that line and say, you know what, I'll pay more than that because I want to be part of this power center or I want to be part of this mall or shopping center. You know, I need to be in a shopping center where there's a supermarket because the supermarket's going to draw business for me and I don't care if I pay an extra couple bucks in rent because I'm going to do that much more in revenue. Well, I understand that if we were down at the law conference where ICSC is our big trade organization for retail yeah. and both of us have, have spoken there and if we were down at the law conference, we'd now go on a complete tangent on something called co-tenancy, which I won't do. But, <laughs> but the concept would be is that if you're not a big anchor, right, if you're not Macy's, but yet, let's say I'm, I'm a restaurant and I'm agreeing to pay for part of Macy's cost of being there because I really want Macy's, then by God, Macy's better be there. And if Macy's isn't there, conceptually, my rent should go down if Macy's closes down because I'm, I'm paying more money because Macy's is there. 95% of landlords, I will say, will never agree to those type of provisions just as a takeaway because that's what really pulled down the retail industry in the late 2000s was that you had lease after lease after lease that had these co-tenancy provisions. Um, that said, hey, you know, if, if tenant X isn't there, you get to pay less rent. If tenant Y is not there, you get to pay less rent. Maybe you even get to close down. And it was a house of cards that fell through. So um, they're much harder to negotiate now. But just as an, they, that they do whole hour-long sessions on coaching. I got to tell a great, I'll try and do it really fast, a great <laughs> war story, a great case that we worked on. It was, it was I won't tell you who it is. Uh, it was a major, major mall in the Northeast. And we were representing one of these anchor, anchor tenants. And... The mall was built in the 50s, in the 50s. And if you go back and you look at the history of real estate then, there was no such thing as a mall. They used, you know, the, the, the concept was to have a shopping center with a big store and these other stores that were near it, okay? And, and it was the same idea of a magnet. And so, and so this particular place turned into a very successful mall with five or six major anchors, with hundreds of stores, and we go in to, to examine the, the common area costs for, the, for one of the major anchors. And we're looking through the expenditures and we're looking, and, and this particular client had already done two or three or four CAM audits before we ever got there. And they pulled out capital, claimed things were capital and they shouldn't have been paid for, and all the typical arguments. And we looked and we're trying to look at, do they have in, in these, they actually own the store, they have what's called a reciprocal easement agreement. There was, a, there was an agreement where they agreed to pay a share of something. And we're looking at this agreement and we can't figure out what they're supposed to pay. Because the agreement says that they will pay, they're gonna buy their store, right? They bought the land and they're gonna put up their store and they have to pay to keep the, the, the sidewalks around the store free of, clean and free of snow and they'll keep the parking lot clean. And that's all we saw. And we're looking at it, we're looking at it, which can say where's, where's the obligation to pay for the cost of the, you know, the place became a beautiful mall. It's, it's got air conditioning, it's got security, it's got all these expenditures that are getting passed through to this particular anchor. We couldn't find any obligation anywhere. And we took the position, and we, we, we finally found a memo written by an attorney in the 50s 
that said the landlord tried to pass through cost of security or something and this this attorney slammed him saying the deal we made was we were willing to take on that that's that site and build a store and our only obligation would be to keep our parking lot clean and keep our sidewalks clean and that's all there was so for the from 1955 or 7 or whatever it is to 19 to 2000 and something they were charging them a share of operating costs for operating this gorgeous mall and when we came in and we said, this, no, there's no obligation. And look at this. We, here's, here's a document that shows that, that we're, we're reading it correctly. And, and it almost bankrupted the landlord. And we went back to the landlord and, we, said, and we, we took a long time to convince the tenant that we were right. Once they realized it, we went back to the landlord. And what we learned was all of the other anchors had what are called most favored nation clauses. Do you know, does anyone know what that is? Most favored nation clauses? What's the most favorite nation clause? That they get any deal the landlord strikes, that's a sweetheart deal. If it's better than their deal, they get the better deal. Okay, so that meant that the other five anchors at this huge shopping center had no obligation to pay any of the Isn't that like latches or something? I mean, isn't there some equitable thing you can claim to? Maybe, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, now think about the consequence. Remember I said what the structure is. The structure is that the tenant, that the, the inline stores, the Gap and the, you know, Banana Republic, all those stores, they pay what the anchors aren't paying. So if the anchors aren't paying anything, all of those costs get pushed onto the inline stores. It was, it could have been disastrous and they worked out a deal that, 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 that resolved the problem and resolved it going forward. But can you imagine? I mean, it was like... It was wild. Did the tenant get any yeah. check back? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. How many years back did they get? I don't remember. It was a lump sum amount that they got, and they corrected it going forward. And they signed a confidentiality agreement as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I can't tell you about it. Yeah. Well, uh, you okay, talked yeah. about auditing, uh, auditing landlords' camp, uh, books and charges. When, when, Mark, when, you're, when you look at uh, uh, a tenant's lease or leases, how many of the leases really give you the rights to do that, and how much pushback do these landlords uh, give you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually um, stupidly flattered by the fact that all of the leases now have anti-audit clauses in them, because I guess that's because of us. But, but, but um, um, the, the problem is that landlords don't want tenants snooping around their, well, there's two problems. Number one, no landlord wants to give back money, so any roadblock that they can put in, in, in place would stop the tenant. I would like to think that most landlords are honest and straightforward, and most landlords do not intend to charge more than they're supposed to, okay? They also don't like tenants snooping around and nitpicking and, and going through this process, and it's just, frankly, a pain. So I would say that most commercial leases today have some sort of restriction. Now, I won't go off on a rant, but I've got to... I, I got to and, and especially because John's here, this will be interesting, right? So the tenant and landlord sit down and they sit across a negotiating table and they argue for days over what the tenant pays for, what the tenant doesn't pay for, the landlord pays for this, tenant pays for that, and you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then at the end of the clause, there's a thing that's, so, so the deal is basically this. All right, landlord, you're gonna charge me for these things and you're not gonna charge me for those things, right? Right. Okay, tenant, you're going to pay for these things and you're not going to pay for those things, right? Right. Okay, we all got it? Good. Then at the end of the clause is something that says, by the way, tenant, if you don't catch a mistake within 90 days, we get to keep your money. Oh, oh one more thing. 
when you come to check the bills, you gotta have an eye patch on because I don't want you looking with two eyes. I only want you looking with one eye. You gotta come on Tuesday afternoons and you can't use, you gotta use a big four CPA. God bless you all. You gotta use a big four CPA, okay? And you can't do it on a share of savings basis. You can't do it on a contingency basis because we want you to suffer before you get any relief from us. We want you to have to put out ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of expenditure in order to figure out whether or not you're being overcharged. Now these eye patch clauses, are you seeing that in more when when did the trend change? It was that probably fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago. Yeah. And I we see it in all all the time. And to me it's like, what are you kidding? First of all, first of all, you're telling me that you're gonna bill me properly. You have the obligation to bill me properly. Don't put the obligation on me to catch you. That's not right. You know, the, I don't know what the, what the, what the, what's the statute of limitations in, in Georgia? Right. One contract. A contract is six years. Six years, right. You know, the legislature of Georgia, in, it, in, its, in, its, in its wisdom, figured out that if you sit on your rights on a contract matter like these, for six years, basically you're out of court. You can't sue over it. It's too late. Six years. The parties in the lease change that six-year period to 90 days. The landlords have successfully gotten tenants to agree to shorten that, and the tenants, for whatever reason, you could explain why, I don't know, agree to this thing. Well, well for, first of all, again, landlord hat on right now. All right. You know, I'm going to draft a lease form that, that certainly is commercially appropriate, right? If I'm too aggressive, you know, um, that's a reflection of my client. <laughs> And my client's going to be viewed by that particular tenant in the community and the brokers and everything as being overly aggressive. And, and, and that's not the business perception that, that many of our clients want. So I will say that we're not going to just put the most academically aggressive lease out there to show how smart we are because it is a business reflection of your client. Right. Now, that said, if there's something that's in bounds that I can tilt toward my landlord client, I'm going to do it. My lease form is not going to just graciously give tenants things um, that otherwise – I could sit before you, any of you, and, and tell you, yeah, we got this, and I'm fine with it. You would be amazed how many tenants in an overall development, maybe it's true in office, I just have no clue, but certainly in a shopping center, just sign the landlord's form lease. Yep. They either don't get a lawyer, or they get a lawyer who is a trial lawyer who just does you know, primarily DUIs and, and, and car wrecks, and they'll mark up the indemnity clause, they'll mark up the default provision, and that's all you get. You know? So why not put into your lease... The, all these restrictions on audits. You know, why not put into your lease a lot of other things that help the landlord again as long as they pass a smell test? Now, if I've got my tenant hat on and I'm representing a national concept and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading through a landlord form lease, you know, a couple things strike me about the audit provision. First of all, a lot of times the real way this works is that landlords send the tenants out a notice, usually in February or March, that says, you owe us money. Not we're going to pay you back money. It's, it's you. Owe. They, they magically make the numbers work. And, and, you know, tenant, you owe us money. Administrator at Big Tenant gets this letter. Administrator may tag an internal accountant and say, hey, look into this. Or a term, may, they may contact um, their, their general legal counsel or their standing CPA and say, hey, help us look at this. At that point, you wind up getting an email from, from the landlord when you ask for it of a PDF of all their backup documentation. It may be a ledger, it may be individual invoices, it may be somewhere in between. But landlords are usually pretty good, especially with the bigger tenants, about sending that over, notwithstanding what the lease audit clause says. That's right. 
And sometimes you look at that and, you, and, and you're able to, to work it out pretty quickly internally without even going to have to hire somebody to do an audit. But if you do start looking at it and you see, wow, this doesn't look quite right, then that's when you call Mark or that's when you call somebody else. And yes, that is always done on a contingency basis. That's the only really, from my perspective, intelligent way for a tenant to do it. Why would they want to ha have to outlay more money um, just to get back money that's theirs anyway? So now the landlord's fear, putting that hat on back for a minute, is that Mark's going to be uber aggressive and going to come back and try and find things that aren't really there just to get a bigger paycheck. That's the fear. But at the end of the day, you know, you can use words like reputable, you can use words like national, you can use words like experienced um, to sort of rein that in. But a sophisticated tenant needs to negotiate the audit clause to, number one, allow for that internal review, which a lot of the clauses don't do, hmm. allow for their general counsel or their CPA to do the review without it having to be a big four if you're not a big four person or without it having to be, you know, a specialty shop. It could be their general counsel. And number three, taking out those time deadlines. I think probably, you know, if the tenant's not reviewed it in 720 days, which, you know, yeah. it's probably fair. Two years is probably long enough. Yeah. 90 days, no way. Yeah. Uh, t tenants, you know, tenants, first of all, the, the issue of contingency and non-contingency is really, really actually works in reverse. When, and we do most of our work, I would say 90%, 90 percent of our work is done on a contingency basis because you will never get a tenant to pay for this because you don't know what you're going after. You don't even know. It's like, you know, you're, you're paying to go fishing in an area where you don't know if there are any fish. Do they, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do they normally, though, do an internal review before they contact you? Well, every bill gets reviewed by somebody before yeah. it's paid. I mean, there's some level of review somewhere anyway. And, and retailers tend to be more aggressive and have, you know, for retailers, real estate is much more mission critical to them than it is for office tenants. For office tenants, office space is somewhat fungible. So they don't put the same kind of effort into the into the, into real estate, but but the thing is this: when you're when you and I, I see this operationally every single day. If we see an issue, if we don't really think it's viable, and we don't think we're going to win at the end of the day, and it's not material, we drop it. If I'm being paid by the hour, I don't have that incentive. I mean, I have the incentive to do the right thing for my client, just like all of you would do if you're getting paid by the hour. But the reality is that I the incentive structure is reverse. I could spend a week at a landlord's offices looking at bills because I'm getting paid every day I sit there. But if I'm only getting paid for the result, then I'm gonna focus my time, I'm gonna be much more efficient, I'm not gonna nitpick, I'm not gonna go after things that aren't gonna be recoverable, that aren't right, that aren't true. So it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting reverse result of what the landlords really intend. I have a question, sir. So the, so the question is, if, the, if there's a limit of, of going back, you can't go back more than 90 days, can you do anything about it to get, try to go back anyway? We, we, we do. Uh, it, it really depends upon the business relationship of the parties. I mean, if you think about it, if you're, if you're a landlord, if I were a landlord, and, someone, and my tenant came to me and said, you made a mistake, and it was clear, or at the end of the discussion, it turns out it was a mistake, and I shouldn't have charged it, and you're an important customer to me, you're my customer, you're my tenant client, I would have a hard time holding on to the money and not giving it back to you because I shouldn't have charged you for it in the first place. Notwithstanding that, as buildings and owners become more institutional and as, as the analysts and the people that work in many of these institutional owners um, uh, become less practical and are really just looking at financial statements and looking at numbers, 
they don't they don't care as much and sometimes the business relationship will suffer these are real transactions among real parties real business parties and typically if if the discussion goes the proper way you can get some recourse on that but it really depends on the issue and it depends on the relationship well and 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 again truth be told probably what's happening in that circumstance is i send a default letter to the landlord. I'm going to take the position that notwithstanding the waiver, that the landlord intentionally and knowingly passed through a charge that it, it knew or realistically should have known it shouldn't pass through. And, and, and when you do that, I mean, we're getting into legal technicalities here, but you can escape the four corners of the contract and basically say, landlord, you've been a bad actor. And so I'm going to default them, tell them they've been a bad actor, and they can either talk to me about this charge or we're going to pursue them for default. And we may be right, we may be wrong, you know, but I think that letter is probably worth my client's $500, whatever it is, to write that default letter. And it's funny, the way we approach a lot of this, I'm, I'm an attorney and we have three other attorneys on staff and we got all this, all this legal stuff. We don't tell, I mean, I'm telling you now, but we don't tell anyone that we're attorneys. We don't act like attorneys and we don't, we don't do that. We, we are very, we really rely on the business relationship. We have business conversations. It's really, because a lot of the things You're that we- You're making me sound bad. No, 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 no. You know what it is? It's not that. There are, there are, there are certain things that are clear violations of a lease. And then there are other things that are not violations of a lease, okay? So I'll give you a retail example, right? So a retail example is you, you agree to pay 10% of the cost of the shopping center, and five years after you're in, the landlord moves in a, an arcade, right? And the arcade takes over one of the other spots, and now the security costs and the lighting for the parking lot go through the roof. Now, my lease doesn't give me any recourse. I mean, some leases will, but most leases just simply say you pay 10% of the cost of security and 10% of the cost of the, of the lighting. And you go back and you say, this is not right. This is not right. You know, I shouldn't be paying these enormous costs because of some stupid arcade that opened up at the end of the shopping center. And so we look at stuff like that. Now that's, if you were to send a, a letter like you described, you, you're not going to get anywhere because you don't really yeah. have a, I mean, you might be very creative and come up with a way. Yeah, kind of a, a breach of quiet enjoyment. Yeah, but, it, it, well, but if it is, I mean, nuisance. there are some things that work and some things right. that don't work. But a lot of times, a lot of times they're, they're not clear violations of the lease. And what you have to do is you have to go back to the landlord and talk business and say, look, this isn't right. And when, at, at the end of the day, if that conversation goes properly, the, the, re, the resolution is, you know what? I see what you're saying. I can't go back and rebuild 2013. I mean, I, this is the way we did it. But tell you what, we'll fix it from now on. You know, starting, I'll go back to the arcade. I'll, I'll change their deal. Or I, get, I get your point. Starting in 14 or starting in 15, we'll exclude that and we'll make it, we'll, we'll change your deal to make it fair. Those are, those are excellent points. And on the business and the legal side of some things that you can do if you, you, you get into an issue, let's talk briefly about tenant improvements. Okay. And uh, what do you see are as occupancy cost issues that, that some of our clients may have uh, there? Well, my, my biggest pet peeve on the tenant improvements, and just as an aside, a lot of times you get an allowance as a tenant. You know, we're talking retail where the landlord may contribute up front $50 a square foot towards the tenant's build out. Okay, just I'm pulling a random number. It could be $5, it could be 100 depending on what it is. But let's say $50 a square foot. My biggest pet peeve as a lawyer, and it truly may be my biggest, it's certainly top five, is that if you read the default provisions and you're representing a tenant, landlords will try and recapture the unamortized value of the tenant improvement upon default. Mm -hmm. So if tenant defaults in year two, landlord's gonna say, we can come after you against for future rent, and we can come after you for the unamortized, we call it TI, the unamortized TI. 
which is the most backwards thing to me in the entire world because you then ask a landlord, well, gosh, you know, if we didn't have any TI, would I be paying as much rent? Hmm. And the answer is no. Because TI is baked into the rent. I mean, any right. landlord, if they have option A to do $20 a square foot and give you $50 in TI, and option B is tenant pays $20 a square foot and they don't have to pay any TI, that second deal is always better, which right. means that the TI is baked into the rent. Right. And so you should, it, by, by agreeing as a tenant to pay back the unamortized TI in a default situation, it gives a landlord a double recovery out of the gate, and, and that's not fair. And that's a good point in default. But what about just a tenant that's not in default? How can they do some? What what can we do to look at their their lease and help them control cost, occupancy uh, cost based on their construction and, and TI dollars? Are there some other ways that tenants sometimes get burned or overcharged uh, when their lease is not allowed? Well, none of the construction costs, none of those TI, none of those TI dollars should be an operating cost. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really a capital improvement. It's really a build out of the space. That that mm -hmm. that doesn't even that shouldn't even be in the realm of the conversation in terms of of what's an operating cost. The operating costs are the cost to run the place. Mm -hmm. You know, the consumables, what it takes to run the place. All of the all of the things that are kind of deal related, the TI allowance, anything that goes into in, getting tenants into the center. That's why you see exclusions right all the time for, for any promotions. And our landlords will argue, well, that's not a promotion for new tenants, that's a promotion. That, that, that's to, to make everybody happy. And you know, we see, you know, we see, we see Christmas parties in operating costs. Seasonal decorations. Right, yep. seasonal decorations. Yep. And Rock Center in New York <laughs> passes through the cost of the tree, okay? And the argument is, that's part of the facility, that's part of what makes this what it is, and it's an operational cost. And I guess it is. Yeah, but it's really, it's really down to that same Mall Santas issue. can be expensive. Yeah, oh. yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I think that, Michael, the, the one thing I would say about improvements in the space is that, you know, you often will fight whether or not, you know, if landlord agrees to maintain, let's say, the, the, the structure of the premises, or landlord agrees to maintain the utility lines within the premises, whether or not landlord can pass through those costs as part of its CAM, that, that can be hotly debated and, and, and you know, would take us beyond our time limit here. But that, that is a way, you know, if you want to control that expense, you know, as, as you're negotiating your lease as a tenant in particular, you want to make sure that landlord is not allowed to pass through the cost of repairs to individual tenant spaces because that can add up pretty quick. Right. Please uh, thank the thank panel you. here. Thanks, John. I'd like to thank the good folks at the Georgia Society of CPAs, Mark Patesh with KBA Lease Services, and John Neville with AGG Arnold Golden Gregory. If you appreciate this podcast, you're invited to thank the guests and the sponsors.